sometimes when we are involved in celebrating Christmas, there may be ways that our culture expresses the season that sometimes we don't particularly like. In fact, back in the time of the Puritans, it became so obnoxious, so much revelry that the Puritans actually decided not to celebrate Christmas, not in the way that their society was doing it. But one of the ways I think sometimes people get upset is when you see this, Xmas. And the part that they don't like is that that X. I remember as a boy, and then probably about a decade or so ago, there was a big outcry. They're trying to remove Christ from Christmas. And so instead of having Christ's name, they put the X. Beloved, that's not something to fight about. Because if you really understand what that X is all about, and if you understand the background behind the X, the X in our language, it really isn't a removal of Christ. In fact, when you look at that X, you need to think in Greek. For you see, when you see Xmas, technically it's not an X. It's a key or a chi. And where you see it is here. This is your first Greek lesson. It is the word Christos. Does it sound familiar? It's the way the Greeks would spell the title, not the name. What was Jesus' name? I just said it. Jesus. But the title, Messiah, promised one, anointed one. And so this was the way it was written. At the time that Paul wrote, at the time that John wrote, at the time that, that the Gospels were written, Messiah was written like this, Christos. Well, all the way back, there's indications, even back in the second century, the 100s, that the church took this long name and they would boil it down to basically what the basics are. And sometimes you'll see it as an X and a P. It's not an X and a P. It's a chi and a rho. The Greeks write their R like a P, just like the Russians do. And so sometimes you see it as X with the kind of P in the middle or chi with the rho in the middle. But this is the common way that often the first century, well, the second, third, fourth, fifth century church would often write when they were demonstrating who Christ was, they would simply put an X. Kind of like, remember that fish symbol that we all know about that means ichthus, son of God, Jesus Christ, our savior? Well, this was one of the ways that they would express the identity of who Jesus was. They would put an X. And so when they saw the X, they thought about Christ. The Christos, the Messiah. In the Middle Ages, sometimes when the scribes would write out and they had to write out those long manuscripts, in order to identify who Christ was, they would use the X. 
And beginning in about 1450, a few years before that, there was this man by the name of Gutenberg. He invented the printing press. And it involved all of this typesetting and all of the rest. And it was expensive. The more letters you put out, the more letters you had to carve and the more letters it took. And and it was just expensive. And so it was very common, particularly right after the printing press was invented, for the X to be used when the phrase Christ was there. And so if you got a... Bible from the 1600s or the 1500s, you might see this. Exians. No, Christians. Or you might see this. Exianity. No, Christianity. And you might see this. Christmas. Now, when you begin to understand what the X means, and you see Xmas, and you and I see that, you can show off and say, it's not Xmas, it's Chimus. It's Christmas. But let's admit, in our culture, that Xmas has kind of taken on a little bit of different meaning. For those of us who really do understand what that kind means, and we understand that it represents Christ, we understand that it proclaims that Christ is the main aspect of Christmas. That Christmas, as we celebrate it, is remembering that there was one who was born a baby, but who was not simply a baby, was Christ incarnate. And so the transcendent God who created the universe, and all of creation is outside of himself, became imminent, became directly involved with our lives in the birth of his son in the incarnation when God became man and dwelt among us. We beheld the glory of God. So when I see Xmas, when you see Xmas, we can think Christ. Now, some are indifferent. Some could care less. Some, when they see this, say, all right, it's another symbol of Christmas, so what, and go on, and, and you know, it's no big deal. But we can admit there are probably some, not many, but some in our culture who use this abbreviation so they don't have to spell out the name Christ. So they don't have to say that name, that title, so they can avoid it. And you know what's interesting? How you view that X will determine how significant the whole idea of Christmas is in your life. We begin a series over the next three weeks. I preach this week, then Gene, and then I'll be preaching the, the, the third of the sermons. That deal with the people in Scripture who totally missed Christmas. Now, understand, Christmas, we can't read it back into the New Testament. They didn't celebrate Christmas as we do. 
but it is those that totally missed the significance of the birth of that child. Totally missed its meaning in their lives. The characters involved, the people involved in that first coming of Christ and interacting with it are all found in Matthew chapter 2. And if you want, over the next three weeks, you can read through Matthew chapter 2 and just read through it and think through it and meditate through it and and pray through it. And, you know, you pray through and you look at the Magi and you say, Lord, help me to be like them. And how am I like them? Or you read and you read about Herod and you say, Lord, how am I like Herod? And help me not to be like him or like the people that are found in in Matthew chapter 2. And when you go through that in the series over the next three weeks is basically this. Those who miss Christmas. Now, there are four characters, main characters, other than Jesus, that are mentioned in Matthew chapter 2. There is the Magi, which, by the way, are not three kings from Orient are. As I say probably every year, it is an indeterminate number of court counselors coming not from the Orient but the Middle East who came probably about a year or two after the birth of Christ. The problem is you can't fit that into a song. The Magi are the good guys. The Magi are the foil. The Magi are the contrast as as Matthew writes this passage. The Magi are the ones that got it right. In fact, as Matthew writes about them, they come and it says we have come to worship him. And and he uses a word there that is uncertain. And it, it can mean either to give adoration as you would to a king or to worship as you would God. And what Matthew does by using that uncertain word is to say, where are you? How do you view the ex? How do you view this child? How do you view the Messiah? But those who missed it, the first one will be Herod. Herod who sought to destroy the ex, the Messiah. And we'll spend time this morning talking about why he would do that. The second group of people are Jerusalem and the religious leaders. Where you see the Magi coming and asking about the the king. And Herod says, where is the Messiah to be born? And remember that phrase. And Jerusalem, the religious leaders tell him. No one bothers going. And then the last ones are the people of Nazareth who were raised around Jesus. Now, put aside all those silly miracle stories that come from, you know, the second and third century. But when Jesus would stand up in the synagogue and teach, afterwards they would try to kill him because they disparaged it. 
is just common. That's what we'll be talking about over the next three weeks of Advent. But this morning we begin by talking about Herod and what we need to understand about that X, if you like, about the Christ is this. Christmas is acknowledging Christ's lordship over our lives. Christmas is not presents, though they're fun and they're okay. Or Christmas trees, or for those of you from a German perspective, a putz, better known as a Christmas village. Those things are fun. But if you want to truly celebrate Christmas, if you don't want to miss it, then during this season, wrestle and throughout all of the year, wrestle with the question, is Christ Lord of my life? Now, when you come to Matthew chapter 2, You understand that in this story, this Christmas, this birth of this child is not simply baby Jesus, meek and mild. I always get a little concerned when that becomes the focus of our Advent season. Yes, it is true. Jesus was born in a manger. Yes, it is true. He came as a babe. Yes, it is true. All of that is true. But that's not the focus. I am the baby of the family. I don't like baby pictures. I don't like it when it used to be reminded that I was the baby of the family. I'm 63 years old. Thank you. I want to be remembered for a lot more than that. And what Matthew wants us to understand is This is not just the birth of a baby. This is a clash between two sovereigns. And the question is, who's sovereign in your life? Now, Matthew makes that very, very clear, but we we kind of miss it because of our English and because the scripture must be translated for us to read it unless you learn Greek into English, and that's perfectly okay. But when you come to Matthew chapter 2 and you begin reading there, you read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, that's the first sovereign, the sovereign who said, I am Lord of my life. I am king of my life. And I will let nothing threaten my lordship. That's the first king. And Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is he? Now, here's how the English translates, and it's a very good translation. Who has been born? king of the Jews. In the Greek, it's a little more specific. It sounds wooden to our English. 
But in the Greek, it says this. Who is the born king of the Jews? And none of you went, ooh. None of you heard the backslap against Herod. But, oh, is it there? See, we need to understand there's this conflict going on between these two sovereigns. The first is a king who is the appointed king. The one who called himself the king of the Jews. The one who loved that title and made sure that that title was present wherever his name was written. And you need to understand that Herod, in a political sense, was a good king. He had done all of these building projects. He had built um, gymnasiums and he had built baths and he had built whole cities. And in fact, it was Herod the Great, this Herod who was talked about here, that began the building, and re- I'm sorry, the rebuilding of the temple. It began in 20 BC and would not be finished until 63 AD. Seven years before its ultimate and complete destruction. Herod was a proficient builder. Herod did something that few people could ever do in the Middle East. We still can't. He kept the peace. He would not allow there to be rebellion in civil unrest while he was king. But the problem with Herod was the Jews never accepted him because Herod wasn't a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was an Endumian. He was from the people that the Maccabees a couple hundred years earlier, had conquered and forced to become Jews. He became a king of the Jewish people, not because he was born out of the line of David. Became king of the Jews because Caesar had appointed him as king. Caesar had backed him with his legions. And Herod had had subdued the Jewish people. But the one thing about Herod, because he always saw himself as struggling with being accepted as king, Herod sought to destroy anything that threatened his authority. He sought to destroy anything that would question the fact that he was the sovereign and king and lord of his life. It was so bad, Herod had ten wives. We know that he killed at least two of them because they began to push their sons as the next one to inherit his throne. We know that Herod killed at least two of his sons 
so that it led, according to tradition, to say that it is better to be a sow in Herod's court than to be a son. Herod was so threatened by this lack of acceptance of his authority and his position and his supremacy that he declared at his death that one child in each of the major families of the Jewish people were to be killed when he died. So at least there would be mourning in the land at his death. Fortunately, the command was never carried out. And Herod said, when the Messiah came and he understood what that meant, why? Because of his question. Where is the, what? Messiah. He understood this one being born was the one promised by God in the Old Testament, the one that was to come and bring peace and prosperity to the nation and to the world, the one that would rule over all. And Herod said, no way. I am the sovereign of my life. Herod was insecure, fearful, jealous, destructive, despairing. And the older he got, the more wicked and vile and violent he became. And so when Jerusalem heard there was one who was the born king of the Jews, they were terrified. For you see, Herod was the appointed king. But the Messiah, the one the Magi were looking for, was the born king. The legitimate king. The king who was there by heredity, who was the son of David. The legitimate one who would be king. In fact, they understood the prophecies. You can even read in Rome. There's a, there's some writing about when Vespasian and later Titus became the, the Caesars. And it goes on to say that they came out of Jerusalem because of their conquering of the city. And it says there, we know that this is legitimate, that they're the Caesars. Why? Because all the world knows that one day one will come out of Jerusalem who will bring peace and prosperity. And the Magi came and said, he's born. He's the legitimate sovereign of everything. You see, he's the one who was promised and expected. Again, not just in the Old Testament, not just by the Jewish people, but even in the the Roman world. He was the one who would bring peace and prosperity. The Messiah. And he was the one who was legitimately the sovereign over all. 
So Matthew creates this clash. The man who would be king and the man who truly was. The one who said, I will be the authority and sovereignty in my life. And the one who truly was the authority and sovereign over all of creation. And Matthew brings that conflict before us. And the question that comes through the act of the Magi is this. Who's sovereign over your life? Who's the king of your life? Who is the one that has ultimate authority? Who sets the course of your life? Who sets the morality of your life? That sets the direction of your life? Because in that conflict, you find Christmas. In that conflict, you define the X. Two kings. God who came as a child, the legitimate Messiah, or me. That's the choice of Christmas. Now we know the story. And we know that Christmas will require a choice between these two. You have a choice to make. Are you going to choose to be sovereign over your own life and the ultimate authority in your own life? You see, that was the choice of Herod. Herod, the insecure king, and very honestly, when we choose to be sovereign over our own life, God says you will destroy that life. I had an opportunity a few weeks ago to talk to a young man. Young man, he's in his 50s. That's young. Okay, some of you gray hairs, I want to hear an old man, an amen. Or an old man, either one. (laughs) And he was facing death. And we talked about his faith, and we talked about the fact that he was forgiven in Christ. And then the young man said this. I wasted my life. He had the wrong sovereign and it destroyed him. It destroyed Herod. We don't have time to talk about what was going on in Herod's life, but by the end of his life, he was maniacal in his anxiety and fear. There's indications that he attempted suicide. And we know that he taught, he sought to destroy every aspect of his life so that in the end, no one would even grieve his death. Now, it isn't always to that extreme, but beloved, anytime we choose to say, I am king and I'm going my way, which is, by the way, anytime we sin, which is, by the way, anytime we seek our glory above God's glory, There are some sins that are more heinous than others, but all sins have this one thing in common. It says to God, I'm the authority, not you. 
no matter how small or large the sin, they all have that in common. And sin leads to death. But it also destroys others. Ask Herod's wives. Ask Herod's sons. Ask the children of Bethlehem. In fact, as Matthew ends that whole section, he ends it there in verses 17 and 18, 16, 17, and 18, with this just palatable grief. When Herod realized that the Magi had fooled him, outwitted him. He was furious and gave orders that all the children, two years old and under, should be slaughtered. And then a verse that's quoted, not because it's a prophecy, but because it just catches the pain and the hurt and the vileness. A voice is heard in Rama weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and cannot, will not be comforted. That choice of sovereign, if I choose to be on that throne, will lead to the destruction and pain of myself and others. But thank God there's an alternative. We can make Christ the Lord of our lives. We can make Christ the sovereign of our lives. We can choose to live a life in a way that is pleasing and honoring to him. We can choose to live a life that is faithful to him. We can choose to live a life that brings him glory and honor and worship and praise. And in doing that, God says that he will share his glory with those who seek his glory. God says that he will take our obedience and our faithfulness and form us now and a forming that will echo in eternity. Faithfulness doesn't end when we die. It is rewarded and expanded in eternity. You see, we can have the king who is the sovereign of the universe, be the Lord of our lives, and that will bring joy. Look at what happens when the Magi come, and they come to him in the house. Yes, not by the manger scene. And there's even questions whether we'll get, we can go in there another time. But the historical aspects of it all are sort of, we may not have it all down completely right. But it says they were overjoyed at finding the king. And also, it brings eternity. It begins by trusting Christ as my Savior, accepting his death in my place, his, his death on the cross as my payment for sins. But beloved, it doesn't stop there. We are to live a life that reflects that relationship in everything that we do so that we begin to understand that Christmas is not Christmas trees and Christmas presents and Christmas cookies and, you know, all of that stuff. 
Christmas is an attitude of my heart that says the Lord, my Lord, is the one who was born in Bethlehem. So that this Christmas season, this Advent season, I take time to think about who's Lord of my life. But not just for the next three weeks. But it becomes the very foundation upon which we build our lives. I want to take time to get to know the word so I know what my Lord wants me to do. I want to interact with his people because it's in these relationships that I get to see the Lord and the Lord speaks to me and ministers to me and I have opportunity to speak into the lives and ministers to others as a representative of my Lord. Christmas is about seeking and understanding that Christ is Lord. Now, I cannot preach an Advent sermon without having something from the Christmas carol. But Scrooge gets this right. For however long he was alive, he lived with himself and his money as the sovereign of his life. But after the visitations, listen to what he says. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Tell me. (laughs) Tell me that I may sponge away the writing on this stone. (laughs) Spare me. (laughs) Spare me. My own room. I'm alive. Thank you, Spirit. I will keep my promise. I will live in the past, present, and the future. The spirits of all three will strive within me. Oh, heaven and Christmas time be praised. Dickens got it right. Christmas is lived all year long. Christmas is lived with the ghost of Advent past, Advent present, and Advent future. To choose to be your own sovereign is to lead to the grave. To choose to allow God to be sovereign leads to celebration and joy and eternity. Who's your king? Who's your sovereign? What does Kai mean to you? Father, thank you for the lesson we have before us. Father, if there's someone here who's never trusted your son as Savior, we invite them to come and speak to someone here to know how that they may make that choice. And Father, for those of us who know your son, may we live a life where you are sovereign over every area of our life, to your honor and to your glory, for your praise and your kingdom. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.